You are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. The Tour de France starts here. My name is Lionel Burney and this is our preview of the 2023 race which starts in Bilbao on Saturday, July the 1st in case you're wondering. Last week was the 10th anniversary of the Cycling Podcast's first episode. It was a preview of the 2013 race that our dear departed friend Richard Moore, Daniel Freeber and I recorded in a London park and I don't think at that point any of us thought that the podcast would still be here 10 years on with more than 1500 episodes under our belt 89 million downloads and a proud accuracy ratio of over 60 percent over the years anyway to look forward to the greatest race on the calendar i am with daniel freiber our performance coach he's been with us every step of the season so far he's overseen the preparation work the build-up races and the altitude camps or should that be attitude camps i don't know anyway in July, he transforms into television's Daniel Freiber and he goes off on loan to ITV with our blessing. But it means we will miss his grumblings about French coffee and restaurant opening hours. He's been in Bilbao so long already, I'm wondering whether he's going to skip the tour entirely and just wait for the Classica San Sebastian at the end of July. Daniel, hello. Hello, Lionel. I was actually, I was on the High Skibel, the iconic climb of San Sebastian, the Classica San Sebastian at the weekend. Um, you've moved me to the back seat of the... Um, cycling podcast team car haven't you for this episode and I'm quite enjoying it I must say handing you a panino every 90 kilometres um, <laughs> messing up the old bike change yeah exactly yeah, just sort of spilling coffee on the road book so I can't see where we're supposed to be going that sort of sabotaging effort from the back seat looking forward to it we are joined, of course, by Francois Tomaso, who has graced our Tour de France coverage ever since the Grand Depart in Dusseldorf in 2017. He's been threatening to retire for a few years, but like a classics rider who chooses to continue on for a few months just so he can bow out in the velodrome in Roubaix, Francois has agreed to join us for the opening six stages of this year's tour, and we'll drop him off at his favourite Pyrenean hideaway, Le Viscos, towards the end of the first week. Hello, Francois. Not had any thoughts about maybe going a bit further see Le Puy de Dom come with us into the Alps see it all the way to Paris well I don't think you uh, you booked uh, hotel rooms for me anyway so um, no I, I'm afraid I have to quit after Le Viscos and as you know Le Viscos is uh, is a very well one of the most difficult mountain stages in the Tour de France it's kind of Le Vent <laughs> it's kind of Le Ventoux plus l'Alpe d'Huez and Le Puy de Dom uh, you know all in one uh, well, especially as I'd be celebrating my last Tour de France stage. So, uh, I mean, friends, I mean, journalists, friends, well, anybody who's listening to the podcast and to this uh, episode know that on July the 6th from, I don't know, seven o'clock till late, uh, you're, you're kindly invited to have a drink and, and, and well, and, you know, uh, a few snacks, which at Le Viscos means quite a bit of... Uh, Fat. <laughs> well, bread, yeah, the Pyrenean bretzels are pretty strange, you know, full of uh, duck liver and many things. But anyways, yeah, no, but I, I'm serious. I mean, if you ha happen to be around Saint-Savin, uh, which is only 18 k's down from Cotteret on July the 6th, uh, well, we'll be there uh, and there'll be drinks and there'll be food. So feel free to just, you know, pop in and say hi. Francois is podcasting's answer, Lionel, to Mark Renshaw, isn't he? 
uh, Renshaw <laughs> coming back from retirement. Uh, do you know what? I was I was contacted by. Well, I was talking to an Astana rider earlier this week. And people can probably guess who that was. Um, and they they said that when they heard Renshaw was coming back, they actually thought for a second it was as a rider. I said, Mark Renshaw is about forty eight. <laughs> I mean, no offence, Mark, and I'm sure you do a very good job at the Tour de France, but yeah. I think he's a bit younger than that, a bit younger than that, but uh, looking forward to La Viscos a lot, Francois. I'm very glad that you're going to be with us for the Grand Depart in Bilbao. I've packed my loose trousers, especially for La Viscos. Now, before we get to the news roundup, I guess I should confirm our lineup for the tour. I noticed that Little Trek, who have had a bit of a rebrand with a new sponsor, they released their Tour de France lineup on social media in the style of a supermarket till receipt, and I thought perhaps our Tour de France lineup ought to be released in the form of a restaurant menu, entree, plat, et dessert. Anyway, Francois and I will be joined in Bilbao on Saturday by Mitch Docker. Uh, Mitch will tell us what it's really like in the peloton and he'll be with us for the first half of the tour and we'll overlap with Ian Boswell, the former Team Sky and Katusha rider. So for week two, it will be breakfast, lunch and dinner with Boz. And then in the final week, I'll be joined by journalist Richard Abraham. More about him a bit later on. We'll also have the odd special guest or two along the way. I can't confirm the details at the moment. And we'll hear from Mitch, Ian and Richard as the episode unfolds. But we really ought to get to the news roundup and then on with our Tour de France preview. I will keep it to the headlines, chaps. Now, we didn't really talk about the Tour de Suisse last week, did we, Daniel? Because the tragic death of Gino Maida overshadowed the race and we didn't recap what had happened. But the race was won by Trek Segafredo's Danish rider, Matthias Gelmoser, narrowly ahead of Juan Ayuso and Remco Evenepoel a little bit further back. Uh, Skelmoser, as I just said, will be riding for Little Trek. They've got a new title sponsor, the supermarket, the budget supermarket, Little. So real supermarket wars at the tour. And they're unveiling their new jersey in a couple of days' time. Might talk a little bit about some of the other new jerseys that we'll see at the Tour de France, because quite a few teams have gone for a change of jersey. Anyway, Ayuso and Evenepoel are not riding the tour, but the next three riders on GC, Wilco Kelderman, Roman Bardet and Rigoberto Uran, are all in their respective teams. In Switzerland, there were two stage wins for Ayuso, one each for Skelmoser and Evenepoel, and also wins for Biniam Gamay and Felix Gall, who will make their tour debuts for Antomarche and AG2R, respectively. It's been National Championship weekend, hasn't it? I won't run through everybody who won a national title on the road or in the time trial. I'll just focus on some of the riders who will be unveiling their new champions jerseys at the tour on Saturday. Uh, well, Tadej Pogacar did the double in Slovenia, winning the time trial and then the road race. Valentin Madouas won in France. Dylan van Baale in the Netherlands. Skelmoser, that man again, in Denmark. Quinn Simmons in the USA. Fred Wright for Bahrain Victorious won the British title. That's his first pro win since becoming a professional rider. And then some of the others to look out for in the tour. Gregor Mühlberger the Austrian champion, Emmanuel Buchmann of Germany, Alexei Lutsenko of Kazakhstan and Alex Kersh of Luxembourg. Four notable national champions who are not riding the tour. Remco won in Belgium, Ben Healy in Ireland, Oya Lascano in Spain, not selected by Movistar, and Simone Velasco in Italy. And before we move on from the national championships, well, an episode of the cycling podcast Feminine came out over the weekend and it features Claire Steeles, British rider with Israel Premier Tech Roland. She was sixth in the Tour de Suisse, 
which was won by Marlon Russa, and then was second behind Pfeiffer Georgie at the British National Road Race Championships. And uh, there's a, an interview with her about her meteoric rise in the past few weeks. But we've got uh, to get on to talk about the Tour de France, haven't we? And unlike Chris Froome, we'll all be there in Bilbao on Saturday. Lionel, can I mention two things before we conclude the news roundup? Just noteworthy, I thought, I don't know if you chaps followed the Vuelta Colombia uh, over the last few days. Ten stages, nine of which were won by Superman Lopez, including, I think, several bunch sprints. I mean, how can a, how can a guy of his stature and his physical characteristics win nine stages in any in any stage race? Extraordinary. Um, no further news, I don't think, unless you guys know any different about him potentially getting a gig with a World Tour team between now and the end of the season. But I, I get the sense we might see him um, next year back at the World Tour. Also, another race uh, of sorts, not a pro race, the race across America. I just thought we would mention our friend, colleague, um, companion of many tours for you, Francois, and for, well, for both Lionel and me, Rupert Guinness, who is getting agonisingly, agonisingly being the operative word, close to finishing the race across America. He would be the eighth Australian ever to complete the uh, race across America. I've seen some video of Rupert in the last few hours. As I said, I think he's within, as we record today, he's within 50 kilometres or so of, of finishing. Um, he, can, he can't lift his head. Um, his neck problems are so acute at this point that he can barely look at the road. Um, so it's been, uh, well, uh, an extraordinary effort from Rupert. He's tried once before, uh, I think once before, to finish the race across America. This would be the first time um, that he will finish or would finish. So congratulations. Well, all the best for the rest of your ordeal, Rupes. And congratulations if, as I think you will, you do make it. This is Seb the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by GCM+. GCM Plus is the place to watch the Tour de France live, sorry Daniel, with their uninterrupted ad-free coverage. Now we'll be on the road covering the race from Bilbao to Paris of course, but even though sometimes we're at the heart of the action, there's also quite a lot we miss in real time because we have to drive from the start to the finish. Now we'll usually have the GCN coverage on in the car and whoever's in the passenger seat will be able to watch it on the phone. Uh, We'll have the commentary coming out through the speakers which keeps us abreast of what's going on in the race obviously the commentary team second to none with Rob Hatch Sean Kelly Carlton Kirby Dan Lloyd Robbie McEwen Adam Blythe and then when we reach the press room although they have the coverage on the televisions it's the French television coverage and I will generally go to the GCN app largely because you can rewind the action so if there's been any key incidents that have happened while we've been on the road I can make sure that I'm up to date with what's gone on in the race. Uh, Now I can pause it if I want to go to the toilet or go to the press buffet and not miss any of the key action. And of course, sitting watching the race at home, you can do the same. And if you can't watch the race live, you can watch full replays of the stages on demand or choose from a selection of tailored highlights packages, long, short, or just a final few kilometres, depending on the amount of time you have available. All of our UK listeners can save 15% on an annual GCN Plus subscription. Go to gcn.eu slash cycling15 to subscribe. 
Well, the 2023 Tour de France has been billed as another matchup between Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard. The two of them have won the last three editions of the Tour between them. The current score is Pogacar 2, Vingegaard 1. And of course, the spring has been characterised by Pogacar's crash at Liège-Bastogne-Liège when his spring was going pretty much perfectly. The fractured wrist, the time off the bike and the rehab and he's well clearly getting back into the swing of things because he won the double at the Slovenian National Championships while he's been out of action Vingegaard has been winning stage races here there and everywhere and it's tricky to know Daniel how they're going to be going into the race but we've got to imagine that it's going to be another close fight between the pair of them isn't it? Well Lionel it's a really intriguing battle and we would have to well, defer to Francois um, and ask him maybe whether he can remember uh, a, a sort of duel with such a, a kind of appetite wetting, a, a, a sort of succulent billing as this one. Um, the, the, if you look at the bookmakers' odds, the third rider um, in most of the bookmakers' estimations is Jai Hindley or some have got Enric Mass as the third favourite and they're sort of down at 16, 18 to 1, 20 to 1. So as far as most people are concerned, this is a two-horse race. And, you know, it's interesting. We talked last year about that moment on the Col du Grand. And that was one of these seismic moments in Tour de France history, a bit like Indurain, uh, Les Arcs, where the, the Superman, the superhero's cape is sort of shredded and or the veneer of invincibility is shattered. And it's, it's interesting to me and a sort of testimony to how incredible Pogacar's form and his results have been since then that that doesn't seem to have been carried over there's still there is still this narrative that that was a blip that something went wrong that day a mistake that will be corrected has already been corrected in terms of UAE's recruitment in terms of feeding strategy nutritional strategy and I get the sense that an awful lot of people think Pogacar is well he's going to restore order and he's going to resume his dynasty this year and that's also based on the fact that he beat Vingegaard convincingly at Paris-Nice in the spring Um, I'm not sure I know there are some sort of number crunchers online who will tell you that Vingegaard's highest level is higher than Pogacar's in the mountains in particular and this is this is an incredibly mountainous Tour de France and there are other other things to consider like for example on paper the first week will suit Pogacar under normal circumstances it will suit Pogacar perfectly because we've got to start in the Basque country a lot of punchy climbs opportunities maybe to take time bonuses we're out of the first mountain range by stage seven however we know that Pogacar might be a bit undercooked um, he's a bit sub al dente he's a bit chewy still um, he's, he's not he can't be fully recovered in spite of what we saw at the weekend at Slovenian National Championships, he's not had the build-up he would have wanted. So that counts against him. However, if that is the case, that he is a bit underdone, then maybe the fact that we've got a stage like the one to the Markstein on the penultimate day, and a lot of drama backloaded in the race, that might also count in his favour, because maybe that by that point, he'll be coming right into form, um, into his very best form, and he'll be able to land the coup de grâce um, so there, there's lots to consider also as I said the teams I think Jumbo Visma I mean poor Stephen Kreiswijk is missing out obviously because of the crash in the 
Dauphiné, but they've got a pretty much a perfect team, the, exactly the team they would have wanted to bring to the Tour de France. And UAE have really strengthened as well, and they've probably got the best domestique. They're going to have the best domestique at the Tour de France in the mountains. That's going to be Adam Yates. I mean, Pogacar is a delicately, perfectly made, handmade pasta though, isn't he? And he only needs another 90 seconds in the water to be perfectly <laughs> Um, perfectly cooked doesn't he uh, I think the the, 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 the mouth watering aspect to this is that the race starts off really hard doesn't it there's okay not big big climbs on the uh, the, the, the Pyrenees in terms of you know a full 100% uh, trip through the Pyrenees that you might get if it came a bit later in the race but it, the Pyrenean stages are coming off the back of a hard start which is basically like a mini Itzulia, a mini tour of the Basque Country. I mean, Francois, how do you see it over the opening few days? Could, do you think that Jumbo Visma and Jonas Vingegaard are going to want to try and test out Pogacar early on and see just how he's legs are doing whether there's any uh you know tenderness in his wrist whether that causes any issues do you think that they want to go hard right from the start obviously i mean they did try to 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 you know topple and um, you know hustle uh Pogacar in the tour last year already and in the end it worked uh but to, but to go back to the pasta comp- comparison i think uh, in in my mind uh you know uh Pogacar is is much more organic and uh, uh, you know and all wheat than uh, than Vingegaard will ever be. Uh, Vingegaard is a kind of a, is the the you know Tour de France specialist type. I mean we've we've had for the past thirty years the guys who, who, who could win the Tour who were preparing for the Tour uh, were not going to to win many other races. You know apart from the Dauphiné, apart from the preparation races when. Pogacar is on his way. I mean, he's still young. I mean, he'll still be, you know, up for the white jersey competition, which is uh, amazing for a guy who's already won two Tour de France, finished second once. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Pogacar is, is on his way to win everything that's available. And we saw in, it, we saw in spring that probably his aim in life will be, is to probably one one zero one uh, welter and and all the the, the monuments which is something Vingegaard will never do i mean even winning one classic may be out, out of reach for uh, so in terms of the quality of the wheat i think pagachar is definitely uh, better be, better raw material now uh, now you said the, the you, you, now actually you said well, i think it will be down to uh, form and luck. Uh, we've seen in the, in the last couple of years that the the guys who, who are in the astounding form Vingegaard was in at the Dauphiné tend to struggle a little bit in the third week of the Tour. And by contrast, I think that Pogacar uh, will really, I mean, you know, it's, it's often a good thing to come in the Tour uh, you know, without the, the, the full preparation, be fresh and use the first week. So, yeah, as you said, maybe part of the of the uh, battle will be Jumbo trying to make as much uh, you know as they can in the first week, hoping that Pogacar is not in his best shape, and then you, you'll probably see you'll probably see you know Pogacar r- rise to form, and and so I, I'll put my personally uh, I'll put my bets in Pogacar because as Daniel said, he's got a much better team now. I think he has more. Uh, you know, inner qualities than, than Vigogan. Um And, and I, th- I think it's in a way it's a blessing that he was injured. 
you know, in the first place. I mean, a Frenchman talking about pasta, let's just hope neither, I don't want to be unkind, Francois, but let's just hope neither of them are. I mean, I, I didn't know Brits were more, you know, knew more about pasta than French, <laughs> but anyway, there you are. <laughs> but let's, let's. As soon as um, Francois introduced the pasta, pasta analogy or perpetrated, um, sorry, perpetuated the pasta analogy, I was starting to perspire. But talking perspiration, I think that, uh, you know, Francois mentioned luck and we never, we never... Um, attach enough emphasis to luck we always completely discount it because it is so unpredictable obviously that's the nature of it but I think weather is going to be key as well and I do think that a hot tour will favour Vingegaard just based on what we've seen over the last three or four years I mean even at the Dauphiné it was a, a warm week but there was one very very hot day and that was the day that Vingegaard won and if you if you think back to the first big head-to-head duel that these two had, Pogacar versus Vingegaard, where Pogacar really crushed everyone and took the tour out of everyone's reach with that first attack at Le Grand-Bournon, and it was cold and it was wet, and that is quintessential Pogacar weather. And I I do think that that will that will play its part, even though I know both of them, and this is. This is sort of standard practice now for GC riders. They are doing a lot on heat adaptation. All of the top GC riders think a lot about this now. There are even riders, I think Guillaume Martin um, has worked with a, a, a specialist in this particular era, um, area, thermo adaptation or so on, um, so on and so forth. So I do think that will be uh, an issue. Well, let's see. I mean, hopefully neither of them will be, you know, sitting in a soggy bowl, having been in the water for 25 minutes a la France. But uh, just lastly on Jumbo Visma and UAE Team Emirates, I mean, you make the point about the teams there. Jumbo Visma really have picked a classics team almost for uh, the tour. Dylan Van Bala, Nathan Van Hooydonk, Christophe Laporte, Tish Benoit, Wout Van Aert. I mean, that is an awful lot of power for those tricky opening stages and anything where there's sort of the slightest possibility of some kind of ambush or, uh, you know, really sort of turn the screw on UAE Team Emirates who have more of a kind of conventional looking Tour de France mountain train, don't they? I mean, we saw, well, um, yeah, we'll wait to see how Adam Yates is deployed, but they've got some real climbing power in there as well, haven't they? With Raphael Maika, Marc Soler and Felix Groschartner. Um, we mentioned that between them, Pogacar and Vingegaard have won the last three tours. We're going to see Egan Bernal, who, of course, won the race in 2019, back at the tour for the first time since then. Had a pretty awful few years, hasn't he? Sixth in the Vuelta in 2021, and then that terrible crash at the start of 2022, training on his time trial bike in Colombia. Some really terrible, almost career-ending injuries. So uh, it's great to see that he's back on the start list at the Tour de France. Uh, it's been a fairly low-key season for him, but some little signs at the Dauphiné, perhaps. Daniel, what are we expecting from Egan Bernal? Is it just good to see him back, or is this the beginning of uh, a journey back to the sort of territory where he might be able to go toe-to-toe with the likes of Pogacar and Vingegaard? I think, well, it's certainly really good to have him back, um, not least from our point of view as journalists, because it's always a a pleasure to speak to him he's a rider who you know really takes his time to think about your questions and give as full and comprehensive and thoughtful an answer as possible so that's good from our point of view and at the Dauphiné I think it really was in the balance whether he was going to be um, in the tour lineup or not and it was in the balance as far as he was concerned he wasn't sure whether he wanted to come back to the tour because he only wants to 
be there if he feels it's he's going to be able to um, compete in some fashion and the same with the team really and they, there is a bit of a vacuum a power vacuum as far as a, an outstanding GC leader at Ineos is concerned I mean Rod Ellingworth said to me at the Dauphiné that Danny Martinez was going to be the the closest thing they had to a GC leader and that was before Martinez had a pretty average last weekend so that's going to be really interesting I don't expect you know I don't expect Bernal to challenge Pogacar or Vingegaard certainly not um, I, I do think that he could possibly contend for a stage win um, in the mountains maybe in the second half of the of the race he's just, he's a bit of a diesel engine who tends to well in the, in the first part of his career tended to get better as the races got harder and longer and I think we could see that but it's going to be interesting to see what they do um, Ineos bearing in mind as well that they've got a couple of options on GC who we think are not going to be with the team next year Carlos Rodriguez and Dani Martinez and then the, the sort of alternatives I guess a Pidcock and Bernal over whom um, there are question marks really with Pidcock there are question marks about what he wants to do whether he, he has the sort of stomach or desire for a GC challenge and, and Bernal as we just discussed yeah I think top 10 uh, is feasible for Bernal uh, I, I, I find his Dauphiné very promising actually because he was there in the mountains not with the very uh, first top guys but not far for a guy who's, who's had the problems he had I mean I think it was remarkable uh, and the, the funny thing was I, I received like uh, I suppose you guys as well the uh, official Ineos uh, communique announcing that their team and they, they stopped short of mentioning that there are two words you don't see one is GC and the other one is stage win so obviously they're not going for either or they're going for both you know I, who knows but I, I mean it was tracking you know they're, they're, you, you, you really I don't, I don't think they know exactly themselves as you said Daniel what they're, they're aiming at but uh, I, I still think uh, uh, top 10 for Bernal is, is, is feasible even a little bit better uh, we'll see uh, and as you said for Pitcock uh, you know uh, Pitcock is a, is a little bit in my opinion in the same position as Garen Thomas was at his age like what are we going to do with this guy and uh, well we, we, we know what happened with Garen Thomas so we'll see if you know Pitcock follows the same kind of pattern so if it is Pogacar Vingegaard 1-2 or 2-1 whichever way round they finish who is going to win the classification minus those two who's going to be best of the rest Daniel again I think the Dauphiné gives us a good blueprint a good idea and the third rider could well be an Australian I think although there's also there's also in the back of my mind that the Dauphiné can also be very it can be very deceptive and I think there will be someone who had a disastrous Dauphiné um, who will come good I mean Richard Carapaz talking about bad last weekends at the Giro he had an absolute shocker and it, under normal circumstances with everyone where they should be in terms of their form uh, he could well be the third best rider GC rider in the race um, same David Gordou that also applies to David Gordou um, had a pretty rotten Dauphiné but I don't know what Francois thought all of the noises coming out of Groupama FDJ were pretty bullish and you know they, they talked about small mistakes having been made but nothing alarming they thought they were still on track Francois did, was what did you make of that were, were we to trust that 
I, I really, he looked really, the, you know, disappointed by his Dauphiné. So I, I'm sure he was expecting uh, much more than, much better than, than he did. I, I'm, I'm also sure he was expecting much more from the French Championship than he, he finally won. One of his teammates won, but, uh, and he did a lot of work for, you know, pretending he was working for Madouas, which might have been the case. He, he was, he was kind of twofold approach. The, the, the French Championship course was very, very, tricky, very hilly, a little bit like what we're going to have in the Basque Country in the, at the beginning of the Tour, and Gaudi was so, so, so. Uh, but as I said, for Pogacar, you know, the Tour de France, as you know, very often what matters is the third week, so we'll, uh, you know, we'll go do finally, and he, d he did as well in the last Tour de France, peak in the third week, so I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident, uh, you know, kind of top 10 finish and a GC place is, uh, is possible. But as you said, the, the, re the other reason why we, 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 we mentioned, a, uh, you know, a man-to-man -man fight between Vingegaard and Pogacar is precisely because all the other contenders were absolutely disastrous. Enric Maas, I mean, what has Mikel Landa done lately? I mean, you know, uh, and all these guys. So nobody has been, uh, you know, really convincing or even promising. So uh, there's, it's, a, it's a very blurred uh, area, but I, I would I would be surprised if Henrik Mas is not in top ten, uh, you know, overall. I would be surprised, as you said, if uh, you know guys like Danny Martinez totally falter, or main, you know, main Ben O'Connor is probably for me the uh, the the Australian with the better chance. I mean, it's it's, it's really hard to to tell. One thing on that front, so I was thinking, I've been thinking about over the last few days. A few times over the last few years, we've noted the fact that we don't get riders collapsing spectacularly maybe bonking particularly in the same way that they used to because they know so much about nutrition now and and you know it's a really a sort of schoolboy elementary mistake to bonk but i think what we see now with a lot of these gc guys is they are straining so hard to hang on to the coattails of these best riders that there's there's an awful lot of volatility in their performances the likes, likes of carapaz gordu mass they are really on the rivet and they're on a sort of razor's edge trying to just you know stay in the sort of figurative and and literal slipstream of the likes of Roglic, Pogacar and I think that's reflected in the inconsistency of their results and the, the challenge for a lot of these guys is not to lose 40 seconds on a bad uh, sorry is to not lose five minutes on a bad day and instead to lose 40 seconds or a minute. There's another factor I think is that b because uh, because of the domination of of these of the monsters, I mean, in in the in the classics, it'll be uh, Van Aert or Van der Poel. I mean, the guys bubbling under. Uh, I I've, I know from uh, you know from fact because I talked to the the group FDJ and other uh, French teams. Uh, they've, all these riders have been asked not to look at the figures anymore and to and to ride more instinctively because because if they look at the figures, they will see that. <laughs> They're, they're, they reached their peak, you know, uh, 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 long ago, and 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 kind of looking at the figures all the time and at the parameters is is something that you know uh, that kind of stops them going beyond their, their their abilities, and that's what they need to do to to challenge Pogacar or, or Vingegaard. So maybe as well, you know, these these guys bonk because they they just don't don't look. Uh, as, as much as in the past uh, at their parameters and sometimes go over the limit. That's, that might be a, 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 one of the reasons. Well, Daniel, you mentioned the possibility of that third place on the podium potentially being taken by an Australian. 
perfect opportunity to go over to the other side of the world to Mitch Docker, who's packing his suitcase as we speak. He is flying over to Europe, to France, and then hopping down to the Basque Country to join up with Francois and I for the opening weekend of the race. And I caught up with him to ask him what he thinks the Australian challenge at this year's tour will be. Well, Mitch, all set for the Tour de France? I certainly am, Lionel. I am really ready to come over because it is in the depths of the winter here in Australia. And I need my summer fix. As an old pro, an Australian pro anyway, I used to live by the summers, you know, and never really get to experience the full winter. And now I'm sort of missing my, uh, my summer fix. I'm ready to come over. Mainly, I'm ready to get over there to see the ashes. The ashes are on Lionel. Great start for Australia. Oh, um, this is not the cricket podcast, Mitch, but yes, it's going to be, and there could be a bit of tension in the cycling podcast during those test matches, um, but we will we'll keep that to a minimum. But I wanted to ask you about the Australian riders in the Tour de France, because Australia had third, fourth and fifth overall in the Critium du Dauphiné recently, indicates that things are all moving in the right direction for the big one. They're moving in a great direction. You know, look, I've got big hopes for Jai Hindley. I'm a big Jai Hindley fan, and I loved seeing him win that Giro last year. And now he's got this big expectation to come to the Tour. I think he's handling it really well. When you look at what happened at the Dolphiné, Ben O'Connor has been on the cusp, as we've seen the last few years. So is this going to be his breakthrough year at the Tour? It's really exciting. Jack Haig, coming off the Giro Dolphiné Tour, is that going to be too much? It seems too much for me. But Jack Haig, he is a bike fanatic. I know we're all bike fanatics professionals, but I mean... This guy lives and breathes cycling, professional cycling. So if anyone can do it, Hagee can do it. I know he is G'd ready to go, and he is a guy who needs to, you know, a bit of a, a bit a bit of a break too after the last couple of years too. Yeah, that treble, the the Giro Dauphiné and Tour de France, it's demanding mentally as well as physically. I'd imagine Ben O'Connor, of course, you know, been up down and maybe this year up again because fourth overall in 2021 but pulled out of the race midway through last year but as you say on the podium again at the Dauphiné indications are that he will be good for AG2R but what about the riders who are not going for the overall the other Aussies I mean the one that leaps to mind is Caleb Ewan He's won five tour stages over the years, but his last one was in Poitiers in 2020. Feels like quite a long time ago now, that, for Caleb Ewan. Oh, I can imagine he's feeling the pressure too. Um, And this is a really big time for him in his career, again, to see where it's going to happen. I know he's going to be ready, ready to rock and roll there at the Tour de France. He's always ready for it. But is this going to be that chance he's going to break through and get that Tour de France victory again? Like like you said, after so long, he's going to be feeling that pressure. Is the lead out nailed and drilled and ready to go? That's what it all comes down to. How well are they working together? I'm really interested to see that. As you know, I get really excited about the sprints. I'm so excited about what's going to happen there. I'm really looking forward forward to seeing some old friends too that's one of the things i really love coming over to for the the cycling podcast and walking around the buses i'm starting to lose a lot of friends now they're sort of retiring as well but there's a few people there that i still know and one of them is going to be my good old mate luke durbridge who um i love speaking to and i caught up with him the other day lionel and i always find this funny too because luke he's written nine tour de france as well this is his ninth tour de france and i just assume he's going to be in the tour every year but as a writer you don't just assume that ever it was really funny talking to him because the team just assumed that he knew he was in the in the tour squad 
So much so they're talking about the rest day this, the plan that, and Luke's like, so am I doing the tour? No one's even called me to give the confirmation because they just assumed that he knew he was in. I love that. He's on the edge of his seat for three days waiting for this phone call. Everyone else has been called. Hey, Durbo, did you get the call about the tour? He's like, I still haven't heard yet. He speaks to Matt Heyman, the director, and he goes, oh, yeah, of course. You're in, mate. You're in. So it's going to be funny catching up with Durbo as always, and I love seeing how he's going to get through the Tour de France, what his role's going to be, looking after Dylan Gronaway, and again, another good sprinter. He's shifted his roles, Durbo, now. As we saw him in the Dolphin A, he was the guy who dropped back with Dylan and pulled him back to the peloton. So that's a tough role, very underestimated what he does out there. Yeah, well, Jaco Alula, of course, have got this kind of twin um, ambitions, haven't they? Because they've got Simon Yates, who, you know, could do very well overall. But there's a lot of stages, isn't there? Especially early on with the the Basque Country that really looked like they would suit a rider like Simon Yates. So the Jaco Alula team is split between supporting these two riders. Another of uh, the veteran Aussies, if I can put it that way, Simon Clark, back in the Israel Premier Tech team again. Of course, he was the slightly surprising winner on the cobbles last year, wasn't he? But going into the Tour de France again for an Israel Premier Tech team that looks like it's going to be hunting stages as often as it possibly can. He's amazing, Simon. Look, a close friend of mine, him and I grew up racing together right from the juniors, staying at each other's houses when we were under 17 riders. And now he's still kicking on. I have a really sort of a soft spot watching him and especially last year on the cobblestones seeing him win that stage there, you can never write Simon off. When I retired two years ago, Simon was hanging on, trying to get a contract right up until December. Christmas Day, I think he heard that he was going to be riding on Israel that year. And he turned it around and he showed everyone why he still deserves to be in the peloton. I do not know where he's finding that motivation so late in his career. But like I said, you never write Clarkie off. He's an exciting rider. And he'll be up there in the breakaways, no doubt. I'm looking forward to that. I'm actually also looking forward to, Lionel, you mentioned it then, the Tour is starting in Spain this year. That's a place where I used to live. I'm looking forward to getting back there and getting a little bit of tapas into me. Oh, the Pintros in the Basque Country is going to be special. Uh, the Tour is not going to be just about the Aussies, unlike the Ashes. Mitch, I'll give you that one. Um, <laughs> we will be discussing, we'll be discussing everything from Saturday in Bilbao. I'm looking forward to catching up with you on Friday night for um, maybe a small pre-race beer, but uh, we'll hook up with Francois and we'll be off and running from Saturday. So look forward to seeing you. Have a safe trip over. You too, mate. And uh, maybe throw a throw a bat in. I'll throw a ball in and we can have a little chip around the car park. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. They've been with us a long time now, since May 2016, which means that this is the eighth edition of the Tour de France that Science and Sport have supported the Cycling Podcast, and we're very grateful to them for that support. Now, if you're doing any riding in July, maybe you've got a sportive planned, or perhaps you're even heading over to France for the Etape du Tour, go to scienceinsport.com because they have everything you need to fuel your ride before, during and after. And if I can make a personal recommendation, I would say check out the Beta Fuel because it's really transformed my riding, especially when doing back-to-back days in the saddle or maybe doing a longish ride slightly out of the blue. I make sure that I've got a good stock 
of beta fuel in my back pocket because, well, I used to suffer pretty badly from the dreaded bonk, the hunger knock, that sense of suddenly running out of gas all of a sudden. And it was an indicator that I wasn't getting my fueling right. And I suppose I was just taking on board the wrong stuff at the wrong time. The beta fuel really came into its own on our Tour de Cos ride last year when we were doing quite long days back to back. And I just never felt that I was getting down towards the red line. I was always staying in the optimum zone and just never felt like I was running out of energy. And I put that down to the beta fuel because I was able to consume a lot more carbohydrate in a really efficient way uh, in a drink in the gels or in the beta fuel chews and well in order to take on board that much carbohydrate in real food you'd end up feeling pretty bloated and sluggish i expect so having the beta fuel drink just means you can stay topped up throughout the ride scienceandsport.com for all of the products you need to get the best out of yourself wherever you're riding this summer and before we get on with the rest of the episode we'd just like to say a big get well soon to Stephen moon the ceo of science and sport we recently heard that he had a really nasty crash at the end of may in the ride london 100 event ended up in hospital with some pretty serious injuries fortunately he's on the mend now and we wish him a speedy recovery we hope he's able to put his feet up over the next few weeks and enjoy the tour de france but our best wishes and get well soon Stephen. so our stage coverage will kick off on saturday after stage one of course but we're already off and running for the tour kilometer zero is underway i've made a series looking back a decade at the first tour de france that the cycling podcast covered back in 2013 the series is called the hundredth tour 10 years on and the first episode is out now on the free feed it's called richie and chris and i spoke to both richie port and the winner of that 2013 tour chris Froome, about the race it was quite incident packed when i listen back to our coverage from a decade ago and the rest of the series will be available for friends of the podcast released over the course of this week in the run-up to the grand depart in bilbao and if you want to sign up as a friend of the podcast not only will you get to listen to those additional episodes there's some belters coming as the tour unfolds including a series of francois thomaso's tour tales very much looking forward to the reaction to well some some pretty memorable memories Francois but uh, that will be released as the race begins next week but you can sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com and know that you're also supporting us and uh, for the first time you can sign up monthly if you want as well so you can sign up for a year's access to the friends of the podcast feed or sign up monthly all the details are at thecyclingpodcast.com and you can add your feed to your favorite podcast app in just a few easy clicks Now, Daniel, one of the other stories ahead of the Tour de France is Mark Cavendish's selection for the Astana team. They've got a very fetching new jersey as well, haven't they? One of the teams that have unveiled an alternative, slightly tweaked jersey. It's still the baby blue colour, but it features some kind of gold uh, flecks, which I think is to reflect the mineral-rich Kazakh mountains, I guess. But Mark Cavendish is the standout figure for Astana and as you said earlier Mark Renshaw his former wingman is back in his camp he's going to be advising I don't know quite how that advice will manifest itself perhaps keeping a lid on emotions at certain points I don't know but the whole story surrounding Cavendish is whether he can take the record of stage wins in the Tour de France the outright record and uh, nudge ahead of the 34 that he's currently on and well leave Eddie Merckx figuratively in his wake what do you think 
Can he do it? Can he do it? What do you think? I mean, I think he can. When you look at the sprinters that are on the start list as we speak, you know, there's some real talent there, but it's not a huge, huge, deep field of sprinters, is it? It's really a sort of a, a, a dozen top operators and then a kind of a secondary list of, of people who, you know, will maybe be contesting for top fives, top tens. But, well, who have we got? We've got Dylan Groenewegen, Fabio Jakobsen and Jasper Philipsen, who I would suggest are just ahead of the likes of Biniam Gamay and Caleb Ewan. And then Cavendish is really in the mix. And I think the stage win at the Giro suggests that on the right day, he could do it. But has he got the backup? Does the course suit him? You know, it's a very tough opening few days. There's relatively few opportunities. Who knows? He might have to get all the way to Paris to do it. Yes, or the chips could sort of fall in his favour early in the race. I think, again, we'll come back to luck and circumstance. And we always talk about sprint finishes as though they are a drag race with all of the best sprinters arrayed, spread across the road. And it's a competition to see who's the fastest, but very rarely are they like that. Um, Generally speaking, out, out of 10 top sprinters, six go awry somehow they lose their lead out train and can't sprint and then you're left with four and then if you add a crash in then maybe you're left with two and in circumstances like that on say the third day in Bayonne then I think Cavendish has a chance you know during the Giro d'Italia there were times where I think there were grounds to be optimistic and there were other times where there was there were grounds to be pessimistic but the, the important thing we talked about this during the Giro was they got better in the Giro and then of course there was that grand finale of the stage win the really emphatic resounding stage win in Rome which I think has changed the narrative and changed people's expectations about Cavendish at the Tour de France I think had he not won that stage and had we not seen what we saw that day people would be would be pretty downbeat about his chances here the, the big question mark, of course, is the team. We've known this for months. We knew this in the winter that he wouldn't have a, a team comparable to what he had at Quickstep, for example. Astana have no real sprinting pedigree. He's got Case Ball. Um, interesting that Astana have announced their team and Gianni Moscon is in it. I believe that Moscon was very much in doubt. He was, well, he was, he was not initially... Astana's intentions to take Moscon and Cavendish lobbied pretty hard for him because Moscon was, well, he was A, instrumental in getting Cavendish through the mountains at the Giro and he's pretty useful in a lead out. But, you know, there'll be a lot of focus on the lead out, man. There always is. And I, I think if you watch Cavendish's sprints throughout this year, they're a good example. If you watch the overhead shots, the helicopter shots, they're a good example of why the lead out man is only one element of what we call the lead out train and every element every wagon is as important as the next one and particularly for Cavendish I've, I feel that the, where he's struggled this year when he has struggled it's been in, from the 3k to 1k to go mark and we saw Luis Leon Sanchez do that job up to a point in Rome and we saw Geraint Thomas do the other part of that job and it's whether he can negotiate that sort of Bermuda Triangle. Um, but I do, th- I, I think he can do it. I think, um, particularly in week one, um, that said, 
I also have this doubt that Jasper Philipsen sooner or later is going to really establish himself and put a stick a flag in the ground and and establish himself as the number one sprinter in the world, and it's going to be difficult to beat him. You know, well, Daniel kind of summed up the the the, the, the whole thing, and he knows Mark Cavendish much better than I do. But uh, uh, I agree on one on one point. I think for for Cavendish, given everything we know, given his age, given the team, given everything, uh, he he really you know he'd better win in the in week one. I, I think the, the the stage to Bayonne and maybe the Dax Nogaro stage as well. I mean, uh, and we know um you know how much uh, Cavendish is kind of. Uh, Fond, uh, it's uh, kind of a passion for the Tour de France and its history, even if he says sometimes the the opposite. But to win, you know, around Dax, where André Darigat will be watching, because uh, André Darigat is from Dax and he'll be he'll be there because he, you know, in spite of his old age, he's still around and normally, well, I, I heard in in pretty good shape. Uh, it would be, you know, quite a symbol for for. Uh, for Cavendish to to win in, in in you know in the home well near the hometown or in the stage where uh, Darigadu for for a long time was the best printer in the history of the tour uh, lives and will watch uh, because other because as as we all know I mean I, I read a, a very great, I translated into French a very great book uh, written by Mark Cavendish called Tour de Force <laughs> and uh, and and I mean the, the the main story in the book as we know is about how to get over the mountains so. He, If if he and given his age and given the team is, he has now, it'll be tricky for Cavendish to reach Paris in in the best uh, in the best possible shape to to win the uh, a sprint on the Champs Elysees. You never know with this guy. I mean, uh, you know, is he, is so uh, exceptional in many ways that uh, you know it, it, it could happen. But on paper. For me, at the moment, we we have a very level field in terms of sprinter, but I in sprinters, but I I think that Jakobsen and Philipsen are a little bit above the rest, and also uh, their teams. I mean, you know, uh, Jakobsen and Philipsen teams, their only goal in Tour de France will be for will be a, a stage win, uh, a bunch sprint win as well. So it'll be tricky. Yeah, and uh, Biniam Gamay as well, uh, an awful lot of uh, expectation on his shoulders riding his first Tour de France. But I do think the one thing in Mark Cavendish's favour is that he is such a big match player, isn't he? And the significance of his final Tour de France, you know, this is the last chance. And as much as he says it's not about the record, maybe it isn't about the record. But the one thing about Cavendish is that he goes to the, the Grand Tours, goes to the Tour de France to win a stage. And he's made that point so many times. It's not about winning multiple stages. It's about going to the Tour and winning a stage. So he'll be absolutely, you know, the desire will be still burning white hot, I imagine. The question marks, as you say, Daniel, are about the team. And I was also going to say kind of, you know, anecdotally, I mean, backed up by a bit of evidence, we used to sort of think of Mark Cavendish as oddly as a slightly slow starter in terms of the sprints. You know, back in the day, even in his real heyday, sometimes it would be stage four, stage five before he would really get into the swing a couple of opportunities would go missing first and as you say Francois he perhaps hasn't got the luxury to let a couple go by in that first week because then that would put an awful lot of pressure on say the stage to Moulin in the middle week which you know by that stage of the race anything could happen a break could go I mean there might not be an awful lot of incentives for other teams to want to bring it back uh, and then you know obviously Paris you know if it was all on the line to win in Paris maybe he would do 
and what he did in Rome. Who knows? But it's going to be one of the major stories of the tour, isn't it? Um, and, and as you say, there is enough opposition to make it really interesting but there isn't that huge sort of depth of field where you know you'd look at it and think that where there's three or four who are definitely going to be faster he only needs like you say a little bit of luck something to happen somebody to be out of position and if it's there and he sees the line in front of him well we we could see that 35th stage win what about some of the other riders we're expecting to see because when you look at the teams unveiling their tour de france lineups sometimes there are riders whose names leap out as you know obvious stage winners i mean there's there's all the classics riders that i was talking about the likes of wout van Aert, matthew van der poel for uh, alpacin de kerning um, then you've got the sort of the breakaway specialists. Um, we're expecting, I'm expecting to see the sort of Nielsen Powerless very active, maybe right at the start of the race, because that's certainly the sort of territory for him as a former Classica San Sebastian winner. On that, on that line, do you, do you chaps have any hot tips for the first yellow jersey? Because I think that's going to be a really interesting one, because there are a number of riders who I know, even if they haven't said it publicly are really targeting that first yellow jersey you know from ranging from simon yates to matthew van der poel riders as different as that yeah well i'd put nielsen paulis in there julian alaphilippe in there yeah it's a kind of the the dream start for the tour de france organizers isn't it because it's going to be the type of stage that will suit such a huge cross-section of the peloton and there will be more than enough incentive for uh, somebody to cause some havoc, you know, a long way out. It could be just, well, the dream of the Tour de France organisers is always to have 21 classics in a row, really, isn't it? And they've certainly set up the opening weekend to be that. Yeah, well, if you look at the palmarès of uh, La Classica San Sebastian, which is the kind of profile we had for we have for almost three days, uh, well, that, that, that's that's a very, I mean, you know, it's not it's not a, a, a classic that is won by one type of rider. It's a, and we're going to to have much. Yeah, uh, much of the same. I, th- I think the start is pretty similar in many ways, also in terms of cycling culture and excitement as the, the, the Tour de France start in Brittany, in Brest, you know, with uh, the, the same kind of terrain, more or less, and, and we, we can expect the same kind of riders to, to be in the mix there. Uh, but the first, I, I mean, it's, it's funny that, um, Lionel, you mentioned Nielsen Paulus, because I, I also... I also think you know he's coming of age. Uh, I'm sure he'll, he'll be on the free reign to do you know more or less what he wants at this Tour de France. I'm not saying he's got the profile of a of a you know huge GC contender, but I, but uh, in terms of you know being combative, going for stage wins on all sorts of terrains, is going to be a very interesting rider uh, to follow. The the only thing I can say about the the, the start is uh, Julien Alaphilippe, which, uh, whom you mentioned uh, the, once again the French champion looked, uh, you know, ideal for him and he didn't do anything. Well, he didn't have a, a you know, huge team like Groupama FDJ had. But is he, we, we mentioned him in a, you know, in a previous uh, podcast, is he really back to his best or not? I don't know. And uh, and also with Van Aert, who, who, who look like, you know, a rider who could win one of these three first stages, might, might be you know, asked to be a little bit less ambitious uh, than he was last year on the tour. I don't know. I mean, we don't do speculation here on the cycling podcast, do we? But who's going to have the first yellow jersey of the race? I wouldn't like to narrow it down to any fewer than 176 riders, Daniel. Uh, Let's hear from Ian Boswell, our friend from across the pond 
He, of course, rode the Tour de France for Katusha in 2018. He was also on Team Sky for a number of years. He's now a star of the gravel scene. And, well, I caught up with him a little bit earlier to ask his thoughts, what he's expecting from the American riders in this year's Tour de France. How are you, Ian? You're presumably all set for the Etape du Tour this year. Well, I'm doing well, Lionel. Yeah, uh, in Vermont now and... Yeah, summer's here, so I've been, uh, well, I'm always riding my bike, but uh, yeah, coming over a couple days early to uh, to take on one of the queen stages of, of this year's tour in the Adapted Tour before linking up with, with you and Mitch. And which stage is it this year? I believe it's the stage from Animas into Morzine. So I, I mean, yeah, I guess the, the, the biggest stage in, in the Alps this year. Familiar territory for you? Kind, actually, you know what, last year when I joined... Uh, the cycling podcast for the middle week we i joined on the rest day in morzine and i rode up the rode up the descent that the riders will be going down the port de soleil and my goodness it is a nasty descent i was kind of the first time i'd ridden in europe since leaving the world tour and i thought i used to race down roads like this because um, it is a narrow steep uh and just dangerous descent so I've, yeah i've done a lot of riding in in the alps whether it's the tour or the dauphiné or even some stuff as under 23 with like you know tour de l'avenir um yeah hard to beat hard to beat the alps in the month of july and then after you've ridden the etape it's uh, hot footing it over to the other side of france by train to join mitch and i in clement ferrand you'll be reunited with mitch who i think judging by the podcast you made you kind of suffered through the cape epic with yeah the digger and the doughboy will be uh, reunited once more i actually messaged him the other day to see if he's going to bring his bike over because i'll obviously have my bike with me having done the etape de tour not sure if he has one or not. Maybe I'll bring some running shoes. But yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up with Mitch. I guess the last time we saw each other was in, in Cape Town several months ago. And we were on uh, on mountain bikes out of our familiar comfort zone doing mountain bike racing. And it'll be you know fun to be back at the tour with him because we didn't actually get a chance to overlap last year. But we both enjoyed, um, well, I enjoyed what he contributed to the podcast. And I know that he enjoyed the week that I was there. And you'll be covering the race with me for the middle week and well we were looking at the start list as it begins to take shape uh, quite a small contingent of american riders but a lot of bang for buck i would say that's an american phrase isn't it it is yeah bang for your buck um yeah i mean you know it seems like in recent years there's kind of been a dwindling number of, of american riders participating in the tour but one thing that definitely is different this year to years in the past is the the quality and, and depth of rider. You know, obviously with Sepp Cus being, you know, a key kind of mountain domestique for, for Jumbo Visma, you know, Quinn Simmons is coming off just winning the U.S. national championships. You know, Matteo Jorgensen has been, you know, one of the kind of revolutionary riders of, of the spring, you know, finishing up there in the classics and up in Paris-Nice. Uh, I know he was fourth on two stages last year in the tour, so he's you know eager to get a get a stage win. But there's more experienced and, and veteran riders, you know, someone like Lawson Craddock and Nielsen Paulus there as well. So yeah, it'd be it'd be uh, it's been a while since the U.S. has had a stage win at the tour, and who knows, this could be the year. Has Quinn Simmons recovered psychologically from being blown off the wheel of Wout van Aert? in uh, the breakaway last year it's funny one of my uh, friends actually did an interview with him uh, this spring asking about it and I think he that was definitely a moment in his career that he kind of had a, a realization of you know what it means to be at the Tour de France and, and the caliber of riders that are there and the fitness that they had attained for that race um, I think he's recovered you know I don't know if the uh, the stars and stripe jersey that he's going to be wearing will give him any extra power but uh 
Yeah, I mean, maybe he'll he'll play it a bit smarter this year. And if, if you're in a breakaway with Wout, probably best not to be uh, swapping turns because you may just get ridden off the wheel, even if you're not contributing that much. To be fair, he bounced back from it pretty well because I think he was in a you know a good four or five long breaks in the rest of the tour last year, wasn't he? And as you say, he'll be carrying the national champions jersey. Uh, it means that he won't get to wear the new little Trek jersey, which will be unveiled uh, in a day or so's time, I think. But I have to say the two most likely candidates I would have thought for a stage win you've already mentioned Matteo Jorgensen's uh, fourth places last year but also Nielsen Paulus I mean between the two of them you wouldn't be surprised if one or the other or both managed to win the first tour stage win this year especially the way that Paulus started the year yeah, and, and both those riders have been, you know, they've kind of really found themselves this year. You know, they've both kind of been up and coming for the last number of years, but this year they've both kind of found themselves in in more winning positions. Um, and yeah, and EF, you know, obviously having seen Carapaz recently race, you know, how much of the team is, is going to be behind him? Will he, you know, and just being with EF, I assume they'll have a bit more of a leash to, to run with. Um, I spoke to Magnus Court the other day who said that they may not have, you know, the riders on, on EF may not have as much rope this year to kind of go for stage wins but we all know that the tour changes quickly you know you're the minute your gc rider drops out of contention teams are going to chase stage wins and i think both movistar and ef are going to be in a position where uh they they'll be hunting stage wins maybe more so than protecting a, a gc leader like you would see from from Ineos or yumbo well ian we'll be getting your thoughts on far more than just the american angle when you join up with the podcast for the start of week two in the meantime you've got to tackle the col de la ramaz and the Jou plan so good luck with that i'm sure well you're in your element in the mountains really aren't you so uh, i'm sure it'd be a lot more enjoyable for you than it might be for me but i will look forward to seeing you welcoming you off the train at clement ferrand on the rest day thanks so much Lionel. yeah see you and mitch in a few weeks a grand tour would not be a grand tour without the cycling podcast teaming up with divine sellers of London to showcase the route, the terroir, the spirit of said grand tour for the wine lovers among our listeners. The tour de France starts from Bilbao on Saturday and hence it's high time we heard from Greg Andrews, our resident Christian Prudhomme of the vineyards. And he's going to tell us about the six bottles that make up our Cru 2023. Greg, what have we got for the Tour de France this year? All right, Daniel, this year, looking forward to uh, the 23 Tour de France. We've got some cracking wines, as as we usually do. Um, this year being sort of south, very centric around the southwest, we could have filled a whole case with wines from down there. We've included some cracking sort of producers from the region who are generally working organically or biodynamically. There's, there's not much disease pressure down there, so they can work without using a lot of herbicides or pesticides. Uh, doing quite well. Then snaking up to Bordeaux, yeah, we could simply couldn't resist getting getting a class act Bordeaux in the case. Cross to Beaujolais, which knowing it's a uh, it's a favourite of many of our customers, we couldn't really ignore this one. Beaujolais has become so popular in terms of because of the show's minerality, you can chill it in the summer, you know, and it's just you know, quite a fun wine to be drinking at the moment. Then as we creep towards the Alps of Savoie, the cooler regions up there, it's always going to be leaned towards the white wine. We've got a Roussan, you know, that's sort of lovely and complex. Close out in Burgundy, where we're sort of going through the Cote de Bone, where, again, you know, we've got a fantastic Chardonnay sort of there, really. That I mean, finding a value Chardonnay in Burgundy is probably a, is a massive challenge, but, you know, I think we've managed to do it this year. 
Um, but just sort of taking sort of run. I think we start off. We, we definitely start off with the with a Jura song in the southwest, which is just in the shadow of the Pyrenees. There, very fresh, very lively. We've also got down from there in the Gascon. We've got a lovely sort of uh, Cabernet Merlot Tanat blend Bordeaux. We've got a classic Madoc for you, a sort of uh, Cabernet Merlot blend again. And then off Beaujolais, as I mentioned, wonderful Gamay that you can chill. The Roussan from the Savoie. And then finishing off on the classic Burgundy. Great way to finish the tour. Ordering the wine? Well, certainly go online to divinesellers.com. Um, it should be on our front page there. So for £125, you can order a case. And a further £10 will get it shipped anywhere in the UK. It's becoming quite a Tour de France tradition or quite a grand tour tradition, isn't it? The cycling podcast, Divine Cellars. A box of wine to celebrate to toast the route and you can find a link to the divine sellers website in our show notes but it's basically divinesellers.com the other thing to mention is that stacy snyder's cups will be on sale on the opening stage of the race uh, details of the exact on sale time will be in the 1101 cappuccino email which We'll go out later on this week, or you can check that out at thecyclingpodcast.substack.com. Before we look a bit more at the route, or more specifically the route that follows the opening weekend, because we've talked quite a lot about the difficult start in the Basque Country, it's going to be quite discombobulating those early few days of the tour, isn't it? Because the peloton will look slightly different. Lots of teams have unveiled slightly different jerseys, or in some cases, radically different jerseys for the tour. Jumbo Visma are obviously forced into a change because their predominantly yellow outfit clashes with the Tour's maillot jaune. So they've got this sort of black night sky version of the jersey, haven't they? I quite like, quite like it, actually, but maybe that's my Watford Football Club bias coming to the fore there. They announced it so long ago that sort of fashion's moved on since then. Yeah. <laughs> they announced it about four months ago, didn't they? Yeah, they announced it so long ago they rode the 1980 Tour de France uh-huh. in it. Uh, the, the Uno X jersey, as you suggested, Daniel, has been reversed. So it's kind of predominantly red with a yellow band rather than yellow with red. I mean, a, a subtle change. It does look a little bit like uh, Ronald McDonald's outfit from the, the famous fast food restaurants, but it will be very visible. Uh, Bahrain Victorious have gone for a quite a subtle, what is it? white gray slightly off-white gray with a with some sort of jade green um, detailing the Bora Hansgrohe team have got a jersey which basically marks a decade of their time in the Tour de France they rode the tour for the first time as NetApp if you remember and originally they were relying on uh, wild cards from ASO and their jersey kind of pays tribute to their relationship with ASO and a standard jersey I've mentioned, but probably the most radical change is Movistar, very much wearing a sort of an away shirt version of the traditional Movistar jersey. It's white with a, a pale blue M on the front. Quite like that, actually. That's probably the best of the bunch for me. Lionel, I was going to stop you when you mentioned um, Bora Hansgrohe. We didn't mention, there were a couple of sprinters we didn't mention, primarily because they're not riding. Um, Sam Bennett, and I was going to get... Or ask Francois for his thoughts about Arnaud Demar's addition, uh, sorry, not addition, omission from the Groupama FDJ team. Now, I suppose we can put that in a bit of con- a bit more context now because we have seen their full lineup. So we've seen, we, we can see what they've done instead of taking Demar. And Francois, I don't know about you, but 
I think Frost, I think um, Arnaud Demar usually offers decent bang for the buck in the Tour de France. He's not a guaranteed stage winner by any stretch of the imagination, but I would have thought that he could have, even with one or two helpers, he could have looked after himself and, and possibly got a stage win, certainly got some, some you know, top five finishes in sprints. We've said it many times here, you know, in the in the past couple of years. I mean, the 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 days of train and even sometimes lead out guys, you know, are, are not gone. But I mean, it's not lots of sprints we've we've seen in the Giro in, in in major stage races. You know, these days you you win not on your own, but not not with the train and the lead out guy. I mean, Wrench, uh, uh, it's great to see Rancho back, you know, uh, around the race. But I mean, the days when he used to lead out, you know. Uh, Cavendish with the, uh, uh, the the various trains uh, he had at the time uh, are, are gone, and I think Arnaud Demar with just one you know uh, support uh, rider could have been included in the team, because I mean uh, the, the the team Groupama FDG fielded uh, is supposed to be 100% behind David Godu, I suppose, and uh, I, I it's 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 in a way hardly the case. I mean uh, there, there are a couple of riders which I. Th- I, I really believe you could do without Kevin Genietz and put uh, Arnaud Demar in, play, in his place, and he wouldn't have uh, you know ruined uh, David Godu's chances uh, for the GC anyway. So yeah, I mean it's a decision they made. Um, uh, Arnaud Demar made it pretty clear now that he's leaving the team at the end of the season, uh, and may- maybe that decision had been made before, and maybe there are you know inside the team uh, you know li- little route. Um, and we know that at the start of the season there's been a, a very very harsh. Row between David Godu and Arnaud Demar, and and that the, the the whole thing climax with uh, uh, Demar being uh, you know left left out uh, of the team. Uh, so well the, to to get back to what you were saying, I'm I'm glad because you mentioned uh, Lionel uh, the Movistar outfit, and you mentioned the Watford conne- connection for Yumbovisma. Uh, I must say the Movistar. Uh, jersey looks a lot like uh, Olympic Marseille jersey, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel's already switching off here. Nobody looks like <laughs> Arsenal in the peloton, do they, unfortunately, Daniel? Uh, Group Arm FDJ are all for David Godou until Thibaut Pinot and Valentin Madouas are dancing up the road. Madouas showing off his French champion's jersey. Pinot saying farewell to the tour. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be one of those selection issues that if Godou is in good shape, it will be the, the, the perfect decision. But if he's kind of struggling from the off, uh, they do at least have some climbing uh, riders to fall back on. But I would argue it's going to be harder for Pino Maduas to actually win a stage than, than it would be to get get Demar into position. And, you know, and for a French team, a stage win is absolutely everything, isn't it? But we will see... Now that you mentioned Pinot, I mean, I know we've mentioned him already, but I mean, another rider you can never uh, forget because he's always in the mix for the top five roughly is Romain Bardet you know he's it, it, been doing alright in the Tour de Suisse uh, I mean the, the, we, what we've seen of him this season point to you know he, he won't of course be uh, in the mix with uh, you know uh, Pogacar and Pogacar and Vigegaard I mean remember last year he was second at, at one stage in the GC but I mean uh, you know talking of the uh, bubbling unders and the guy you, you know aiming at the podium uh, I, I don't I think we you, you can't rule out uh, Bardet Lionel other high profile omissions that we didn't mention uh, the one 
that I suppose garnered most attention last week was Chris Froome, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the winner 10 years ago, of course, the subject of that Kilometre Zero episode. And if you listen to that episode, Froome sounds at various points, particularly uh, later on in the interview, a little bit out of breath. And that's because he spoke to me while he was on his indoor trainer, warming up for a big day out on the road, uh, I think at Altitude. Um, it was a bit of a secret location, I think, at the time. But uh, he was obviously very confident of making the cut for Israel Premier Tech, but they have chosen not to select him. And of course, Froome's first reaction was to say that he will be back next year to ride the 2024 Tour de France for Israel Premier Tech at the age of 39. Um, Not really a surprise, was it, Daniel, that he was left out? I mean, in terms of results, is there enough there to say Chris Froome deserves a place in the Israel Premier Tech lineup? They've gone with a I would say a, a, a lineup with a bit more punch you know Dylan Turns, Simon Clark, Mike Woods they're all potential stage winners Ugo Uhl won a stage last year of course I mean there's a, there's a sort of a team that's going to be aggressive you would think I I think that this is about the deliberate attempts on the part of the management of that team to change the identity slightly of that team and 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 make a break with what it's been up until now. I mean, it's, it's been sort of mocked in some quarters as a bit of a retirement home. Uh, Daryl Impey's also not been picked for the Tour de France. Fulsang's not going to be there as well. And I just wonder, between Hugo Uhl's stage win last year at the Tour de France which we know, you know, he's a, a guy who's close to the to Sylvan Adams, the the backer, effectively, of that team, um, Canadian rider. And then Derek G's Giro d'Italia. I just wonder whether they've, they've glimpsed a new identity for this team. He already had a sort of Canadian heart, but I think that they can now see how they can sort of build and, and think about phase two of this project. And it is going to be a more of a, a more Canadian project and it's going to be based around particularly where we saw Derek G sign a very, very long contract. And they're looking now beyond Froome and the riders that, you know, were were a quick sort of bridge to credibility, signing these riders with some rich palmares, a lot of experience, and they've sort of moved beyond that now. At five million a year, I mean, Froome is an expensive rider to have on the bench, isn't he? I mean, especially when in cycling, you can't come off the bench and play a part. Um, But there we go the, the chances of him actually you know winning a stage based on the results and the performances this season I would have thought would be pretty slim anyway but uh, it's a it's a moot point he's not going to be on the start line Chas before we move on to talk about the route just one well, quick fire question um, I was thinking earlier about who might be the revelation of this Tour de France and then I started going through the start list and it occurred to me it dawned on me yet again that the Tour de France is really well, it's, it's no country for young men, is it? There are not many riders are sent to the Tour de France um, in their first couple of years as professionals. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to find riders on the start list who haven't already really made a name for themselves. I mean, there are a few who, who have distinguished themselves over the last few weeks and who will be riding their first tour. Felix Gao, Ejitoire, uh, Citroën, he might be a candidate in the mountains. Uh, Skelmos as well, Trek, any... Any nominations for potential revelations of this year's tour? I mean, I think, as we heard from Ian, uh, Matteo Jorgensen 
of Movistar, I think, is a rider to watch. Uh, I mean, Tadej Pogacar and uh, Tom Pidcock may well take uh, issue with your opening statement there, but uh, I know what you mean. When you look at the when you look at the, the the start list of the Tour de France, there's so many riders who have done something big before, isn't there? I think. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Uno X do. I think they'll be aggressive. They'll be visible, not just because of the Ronald McDonald jersey, but uh, Tobias Harland Johansson is a talent, and uh, we may well see a little bit from him. Um, but I think a lot of the riders that you know win stages will be repeat stage winners. I th- I'm with you. I think the, the the best shout for a sort of first time stage winner, Felix Gall, uh, Jai Hindley as well. Um, Francois? Jordi Mayus, maybe, at Bora? Well, F- Felix Zell, I think, will probably be kept behind Ben, o- ben, o- ben O'Connor, you know. But uh, but no, I, I, I was very, very happy to see Fred Wright win the, uh, you know, the national title because, I mean, his first pro win and he's always been so close. Even in the Tour last year, you know, he was very, very often in the top five. The train is, is lacking the sprints, train is like attacking from... Uh, I, I, I would love to see Fred Wright win a stage, you know. It is, is, is among the, he deserves it. And now that he's, you know, it clicked in. He's, he's done it. He's, he's won one. Uh, hopefully, it's the start of his. And as uh, to me, he's, he's probably one of the nicest uh, riders in the peloton at present. He's always a joy to talk to. And I, I'm, I'm, a great, I'm a huge fan of Fred Wright. And I, I would love him to win a, a stage in this Tour de France. So what about the route itself then? Because we've talked a lot about the opening weekend in the Basque Country and then the transition through the Pyrenees, which, as I sort of said at the start, you know, it's a sort of lukewarm couple of stages in the Pyrenees, really, isn't it? Because I guess they don't want to have the race sort of done and dusted by the end of uh, stage six, that the finish at Cotere Cambasque is uh, tricky, but not, you know, super selective. The first real eye-catching one for me, Francois, is Le Puy de Dom, back on the Tour de France menu for the first time since 1988, a subject we'll explore in depth in an episode of Kilometre Zero. But what else should we be looking out for on the Tour de France route? As you said, le, 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 you know the, the logo of the the, the, the the cycling podcast on the tour with the Guggenheim uh, Museum and uh, Le Puy de Dome kind of kind of sums up in terms of uh, you know sites, uh, you know touristy sites, and also in terms of what uh, we have to expect. I mean. As as we know, because it's it's been part of uh, Christian Prudhomme's philosophy, uh, the, the, this, the, this 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 Tour de France is. I mean, the the, the mix is trying to impose uh, Christian for a, for a few years is to go in the in the in all the massifs in France. That that is the uh, Massif Central. So we have the Puy de Dome, the Jura. So we have the Grand Colombier and the Vosges. So we have the Markstein. But if you do that, of course, you're going to have less of the Pyrenees or less of the, the Alps, and one of them is going to be uh, kind of sacrificed. And at the same time, it leaves a little, a little less room for uh, well. Bunch sprints and time travels as well. So we we have we have a route that looks a lot like what Christian Prudhomme likes. Uh, excitement in the first couple of, of days, uh, and then a, a bit of mountains, you know, throughout uh, the 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 old Tour de France with the Puy de Dome as the the the, the obvious highlight. In terms of uh, history and uh, and the things we, we can look forward to, it, it was and it's also something that's important to Christian Prudhomme. Uh, I don't think it's by chance that we're going through. Time 
towns that that are really closely related to famous French writers of the of the past. Uh, we're going to Dax, as I said, you know, uh, which is André Darigat's place. We're going to Mont-de-Marsan, which was the the place where Louis Ocania, uh, you know, had his first uh, license as a cycling, uh, as, a, as a rider with the local cycling club. Uh, we're going to Saint-Léonard de Nobla, of course, which is uh, Raymond Poulidor's uh, hometown. Uh, and then we, we, we spent almost four days in Clermont-Ferrand, uh, in this, uh, around the, the volcanoes of the Massif Central, and which is the, the, the hometown of Raphael Geminiani, which might be a little bit less, lesser known than the other three I mentioned, but who is a larger-than-life character. We, I, I hope we have, we'll have a little bit of time to talk about Raphael Geminiani, the big gun, le grand fusil, who was uh, yeah, really one of the most picturesque uh, characters in the history of French cycling, uh, you know, uh, outspoken. Uh, he, was, he was one of the best, probably, DSs in the history of the Tour with Jacques Anquetil and also himself, you know, won the uh, best climber classification, was, you know, in, a, a contender for, he never won the Tour, but was a contender and he, is, he, he really is a character that, that marked the history of the Tour. So, yeah, obviously, Christian Prudhomme has also tried to pay homage, homage to these guys uh, along the way. So, yeah, that's 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 basically what, what we have. Daniel, what leaps out for you from the route? Well, it's just been really interesting being in the Basque Country for the last two weeks and you really get, I don't know if you ever had this experience of arriving, arriving effectively for the tour two weeks early, but um, it really brings home what an, an, a sort of ephemeral, a cruelly ephemeral phenomenon the Tour de France is. Um, you know, you, you sort of see a city, I was in San Sebastian at the weekend, you see the city sort of preparing for the tour and, you know, decked out for the tour mindful of the fact that it's it's two hours of life effectively you know from the time that the team buses arrive you know if, if it's a start um and and when they leave and it's gone not to return it really is a, a very brief flirtation um and so th that said i think the bus country will be fascinating i mean you get a sense as well from being here in advance of the sort of scale, the dimension, how seriously or how dearly uh, each place is holding this Grand Depart. I, I, I sometimes feel we've talked about this before that big cities or the the bike races can be lost in big cities where there, there's a lot else going on. Just having seen the three big cities that feature in this Basque Country Grand Depart, having visited them all in the last couple of weeks, um, it almost strikes me that Vitoria Gasteis, which is the capital of the Basque Country, but it's the least well known of these three cities, that maybe would have been the best place for it because they seem like the most, ex that seems like the city that's most excited about the tour, the most sort of exhibitions, things going on to do with the Tour de France, also the hometown of Jose Bar Belocchi. Um, but the fans are going to be fantastic on climbs, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, the High Ski Bell. And um, otherwise, I think it's an incredibly mountainous Tour de France, maybe the most out mountainous we've seen, 57,000 metres of climbing, which uh, I think bears comparison with or is actually uh, superior to any Grand Tour of the last 10 years or so. And so it's going to be a climbers grand tour i think we're going to see a lot of the sort of crash bang wallop racing that we've seen over the last few years um particularly last year with wal van Aert's early attacks if you look at the profiles there are a lot of stages with significant climbs in the first 50 kilometers and that's going to be the the fuse um that's going to be that someone probably van Aert or van der poel is 
he's going to take great delight in in taking a match to and we're going to see a lot of fantastic racing and unfortunately um, it's going to highlight a lot of what we said during the Giro d'Italia that long stages 190 kilometer 200 kilometer stages are not the the future for this sport yeah there's not much in the way of big cities along the way is there I mean we're going to have a start in Po the tour wouldn't be the tour without Po would it Bordeaux is back on the Tour de France route for the first time since I think 2010 but that used to be almost the sort of the sprinters stage didn't it the well and other than Paris is Bordeaux not still the most visited town city for the tour yeah and then I mean the others are kind of medium sized aren't they finishing in Limoges a start in Clermont-Ferrand um, I mean uh, you know chicken lovers will be celebrating a finish in Bourg-en-Bresse I, Do you, I certainly do, does, will. Francois uh, rate, a, does Francois rate Bourg-en-Bresse chicken um, it, uh, in my my experience it's been good but not as but not sort of 38 euro 40 euro of chicken fillet good I've been near Bourg-en-Bresse. You have a very, very famous chef called uh, Georges Blanc. Uh, and on, on one of the Tour de France, we, uh, we went there. And, uh, near Bo- it's about 20 k's from Bourg-en-Bresse, his place. And, uh, and of course, we had the volaille de Bresse. It was absolutely perfect in terms of uh, the way it was cooked, the quality of the, uh, of the chicken and everything. But, uh, and, well, and of course, we had frog legs for a starter. But it was far too traditional and uh you know and kind of passé uh, to me so I, I kind of agree with you it's it's kind of uh yeah it's fine you know but it's it's uh, but, but uh, no, it was i mean there, there was nothing you, there was it was flawless but in the same time it lacked a little bit of excitement and surprise you expect uh, you know when you go to a three star michelin restaurant these days so i agree a little bit with you uh you know uh yeah I mean, uh, poulet de Bresse is, is too uh, is too cuisine was a little bit was Chris Chris Froome is uh, to the Tour de France these days, you know. <laughs> well, you're grouching about the poulet de Bresse. I mean, are you neither of you be with me at that point of the race, so I shall find a nice restaurant for the uh, the Bourg-en-Bresse chicken. I'll actually be with our new colleague Richard Abraham, who will be joining me for the final week of the tour. And, well, I suppose we ought to introduce him to our listeners before he jumps into the cycling podcast after the the second rest day as we kind of leave the Alps and head up to the Vosges and then across to Paris. Uh, Richard is a cycling journalist. He's worked for Cycling Weekly. That's when I first got to know him and Rouleur magazine. And he's currently working with uh, the former rider Swain Tuft on his autobiography. And, well, we extended an invitation to Richard to join us for the final week. Very much looking forward to his company and finding out a bit more about him. But uh, here is me in a brief conversation with Richard. I went out into the heart of the Chilterns last week to meet up with him and uh, find out what his earliest Tour de France memory was. And I have to say, it made me feel very old. Welcome to the Cycling Podcast, Richard. We've met up for a pre-tour ride at Chilton Velo in the heart of the Chilterns for a coffee and a sparkling water just getting acclimatized baking hot it's going to be hot at the tour I think you're going to be joining the cycling podcast for the final week but first of all tell me what's your earliest tour memory earliest tour memory I think I have a vague recollection of watching the sort of mid to late 2000s on ITV4 but the real the real moment was 2008 Alpe d'Huez 
Carlos Sastre and the CSD team. That's right. And we'd been touring through France. It was my A-level year. A couple of friends and I were riding down through France and we'd we'd steal a glance at L'Equipe in a bakery every morning. And so we were kind of following all the stuff about Ricardo Rico and Pierre Poli were winning stages that year and Saunier Duval and we were like the anticipation was building and you know that classic Alpe d'Huez you're up there really early we didn't make it as far as Dutch Corner I think we, we were just so overwhelmed at like hairpin five that we just stopped and spent the day in the field um, and then Sastre just pops out of nowhere this you know I think he'd been unknown in that tour kind of playing second fiddle to the Schleck brothers on CSC and suddenly he just you know he pops out and uh way smaller than you ever expected a professional athlete could be and then you see the whole the whole rest of the stage kind of make its way up the Alpe d'Huez and um, and I really vividly remember I think it might have been Bouygues Telecom was that the name of the team back then in in 2008 had gold Campagnolo Chamal wheels and that's just a vivid a vivid memory of Bourg d'Oison you know for the following stage just thinking like this is just the coolest thing ever. They've got gold wheels. And then off they rolled and off we rolled and then that was it. And then uh, from, yeah. Well, quite apart from making me feel very old because I was at Alpe d'Huez that day working. I was in the ice rink in the, the press room at the top of Alpe d'Huez. And what else do I remember about that day apart from it being absolutely baking hot? Yeah. But it's those, those early memories. It is the, the sort of the glint of the gold wheels that really kind of captures the imagination isn't it and was it at that moment that you thought I want to pursue a career in in and around professional cycling in some way what was the first Tour de France that you worked at first tour I worked at was 2012 so I just started as a as a reporter at Cycling Weekly the previous autumn in 2011 and then straight away really we were thrown into that Olympic year and a year where everybody was really billing Wiggins as the favourite for that tour and I think I must have joined somewhere in the first week when it was those sort of flat stages in northern France like Cambrai or Arras or somewhere I don't really remember much about that um, without looking back but I do remember Planche de Belfi and that was a very auspicious stage because Chris Froome won and you know there's that it was before they went up to the super planche so they finished on that real ramp of 20% asphalt and, and I just remember Froome popping up you know with this sort of skeletal hand, hands in the air and Evans and Wiggins behind and there was a moment where I stood around all the um, barriers and this sort of the furniture of a Tour de France finish and humming generators and people dashing around and I was completely overwhelmed by it and I spotted somebody one of those sort of ASO minions who uh, you know there's, there's hundreds of them just doing all sorts of jobs and um and they produced this yellow jersey and that was the, the, the yellow jersey that was the first one that Wiggins wore in that tour and there was just this feeling of significance around it finally, you know, this whole build-up over the, the sort of previous seven months Wiggins going to the tour and then he finally had the yellow jersey after a week or so and it really felt like this was the beginning of that, that amazing summer really so quite, quite an incredible tour to be a part of for the first time really as a British journalist And what are you looking forward to about joining the Cycling Podcast? for the final week going to be in the middle of the Alps aren't you see it through to Paris with me that's right yeah I'm, I'm fascinated by the Vosges and the Jura which it sort of seems like the tour's a little bit on its head this year in that um, there isn't that big Pyrenean or Alpine finale it's, so that will be um, that will be fascinating I, I'm intrigued to see how Jumbo Visma and um, and UAE team Emirates kind of hit that third week. Looking at the lineups from what we can tell at the moment, Jumbo, they're not going to have Roglic, who was a big player last year. 
Um, they've not got Stephen Kreuzweich, who's crashed in the Dauphiné. And UAE looked, although they didn't win the Dauphiné with Adam Yates, they looked pretty strong. And I just, I'm intrigued to see what happens in that third week when there's maybe a bit more balance in those two teams. And, and hopefully if Pogacar and Vingegaard are still within touching distance and there's still a race on, I think that's going to be really fascinating to see how they, they tackle that. Well, I'll see you at Geneva airport Richard I'll be there with my sign saying Richard Abraham just in case you don't recognise me taxi driver uniform (laughs) (laughs) oh you're fitting right in (laughs) well we ought to start wrapping up this XL Tour de France preview episode chaps Uh, Daniel you're off to do whatever you do on television Uh, don't really cross no. paths very much I'm usually the tour, marching we, around it, we're, we're in we're, yeah we're in different orbits aren't we I'm sort of sauntering you're marching um, yeah we don't really even get so much as an opportunity for a bad French coffee no, at the start uh, do we maybe maybe we'll make an exception t- this talking year talking about uh, French gastronomy I can't get now we've been talking about bourgogne breast chicken I can't get our dear another dear friend of ours from Tours de France of your um, Sam Apt out of my head um, Sam Apt the sort of the, the kind of Woody Allen or the good bits of Woody, Woody Allen of the Tour de France press room for many decades, New York Times Herald Tribune reporter. He was always very taken with um, Bourgogne Bress. And I've just put up, um, brought up an article from um, Sam Apps, 2002 Tour de France. I was there. Uh, a poultry centre of outstanding hospitality, he called it. And um, yeah, I can remember S- Sam sort of gnawing on chicken legs um, standing outside the pressing with a little with his little his trademark little rucksack and uh, sort of chortling to everyone who passed about how fantastic the bourgogne brass chicken was an absolute legend of the press room sam but he did smoke about 40 a day so i'm surprised he could taste anything to be perfectly honest um well francois i'll see you in bilbao on friday night and we'll be all set for the off daniel you mentioned briefly that uh, Joseba Belocchi is from vittoria that's the subject of another one of our kilometer zero episodes made by our very good friend and colleague laura messiger that will be out at some point before during or after the weekend uh, we also mentioned uh, Rupert Guinness in passing there completing the race across America and he uh, pops up towards the end of our 2013 Tour de France mini-series the 100th Tour 10 years on that's going to be available over the course of the rest of this week for Friends of the Cycling Podcast we've got lots planned for the Kilometre Zero series this year but the bread and butter is our daily stage coverage and as i say join us in bilbao francois mitch docker and myself until then thank you very much daniel and bon chance for the next three weeks hopefully we'll check in somehow or other maybe we'll do a live free boss file on the rest day or something and i'll manage to get sort of 30 seconds of your impressions of the tour but uh see you see you on the other side (laughs) I thought you were going to say 30 seconds of my impressions of <laughs> Sam Abt then and maybe Primoz Roglic or Mark See you Cavendish. on the other side, Daniel. You will be missed on the cycling podcast, of course. See you. Good, good luck, chaps. Good Thank luck. Thank you very much. And Francois, see you on Friday. See you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. 